Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, we debate whether or not Dead Reckoning was a failure. We review Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Secret Invasion director Ali Salim joins us for an exclusive interview. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 273 of Real Blend, a podcast that knows all the words to Vanilla Ice's Ninja Rap. My name is Sean O'Connell. I'm the managing editor here at Cinema Blend and a huge Vanilla Ice fan. And on this week's show, we're debating whether or not Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning was a failure. Now, don't get mad at us just yet. We will define what the term failure means. Um, but overall, with the box office just sort of struggling, that seemed like the movie that was going to do better. And we will get into a, a heated discussion about how we feel that thing should be ranked. Uh, we're also going to review Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, uh, and Secret Invasion Director Ali Salim comes by the show in order to uh, talk to us for an exclusive interview about the finale and the season in general. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about Marvel and how we feel about where Marvel is going. By we, I mean Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hello, Jakey. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, man, and uh, and very, very proud of you this week for reasons that we will speak about soon. Sure. We'll bring them up right after we introduce Gabe Kovach, who's sitting in for Kevin McCarthy, who probably right around now is sitting in a screening of Oppenheimer. He's sitting on in vacation the- and yes. going Do- to see Oppenheimer. Yeah. Do you think that uh, he has his lobster with him while he's in he's in his screening for Oppenheimer? <laughs> he's, he's, got his, so Kevin, he's got his lobster in a little seat, and every time he leans over, this is this is the part where the bomb blows up. That's Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Kevin is in uh, on vacation, and he went um, lo- he went and got lobster. How do you say that? He went lobstering, lobster <laughs> fishing. He ordered lobster. Yeah. No, he went and caught this lobster. Wait, he, he went and caught a lobster. Yes. Yeah, you like he went out on a boat. I, I missed that. Jake will not only read the text thread. He's been sending us. Okay, here's the thing. Okay, here's the, here's the thing about the real blend text thread lately. Should we preface your I'll, name ahead of the thing? I will look at it and it'll be, you know, 14 mixed missed text messages. And yeah. a majority of them will be Kevin talking about the latest Oppenheimer screening he went to. That's very right. I think he's up to six by now. So I'm kind yeah. of just waiting on. But interspersed, Jake, die down. are these gorgeous photos of his vacation in, in Maine. Yeah, those are great. Those yes. are great. Well, in that in those photos, he caught a lobster and then he was bringing that. it back to his hotel to get it. We'll prepared. have to ask him. We'll have to ask him on a scale of did he go down and catch a lobster versus he was on the boat where the He's lobster happens. He watched the guy drop the box over the side. I hope it's I hope it's a really harrowing story of like. So I, I, was I just want to be gear. on the boat with these like old school lifetime like lobster catchers <laughs> as he is explaining the different aspect ratio of Oppenheimer to them gonna, and talking about and like looking up their their zip codes to see where the nearest 70 millimeter IMAX screening is. We're going to find out that uh, we thought that our boy Kevin finally took some time to himself and took a vacation, but he's actually there for a press activation for the deadliest catch. That's what he's, that's what he's, that's what he's been doing. And, and like the, and like the, the, the result of his deadliest catch was one lobster. There we go. Yeah. Most we've talked about one of our hosts who isn't here. How about swing, this, swing the topic back around to me, for God's sakes, because uh, so people yeah, have been yeah, yeah. Uh, paying attention to um, to tracking me on uh, on social media. Know that I'm working on a book or I'm working on a third book about Bruce Willis 
um, and celebrating his cinematic legacy. And I'm happy to report to all you guys that the book is finished and turned in. So um, huge, huge weight off of my shoulders. Uh, big relief. One of the most um, joyous things about it is I can watch things for fun now. Like I can watch whatever I want to watch and not feel obligated to be like, oh, I probably should be watching something uh, for the book. And so um, I, people have been asking when it's coming out. I have no clue. Uh, this is the start of a long editorial process and they'll come back with their revisions and then we'll start to figure out things like photos and stuff like that. But um, the book is done. And so I will be much happier on this show moving forward. Let me ask you, having been fortunate enough to have read uh, a couple of chapters and the thing I keep telling you every time I finished a chapter that you let me read was this is unlike anything that you've ever written before. It feels like a completely different animal did it feel different for you as you were writing it like did you could you get the vibe as you were putting metaphorical pen to paper and realize like oh this is different than than my snyder cut book or my spider-man book absolutely those were those previous two were so much more research driven and interview driven um where i i would have like this urgency to make sure i got somebody on the phone to comment about certain things or to tell me specific stories and especially with the spider-man one it was really fun to keep climbing the ranks of like prestigious people to speak to like oh once i got this person that means it opened the door to these people the bruce willis book um isn't relying on interviews nearly as much if at all um and so it's a lot more it was a lot more watch uh his incomplete body of work and then do analysis in terms of how these movies maybe fit into the trajectory of his career how they fit into the industry as a whole so it was a lot of work in terms of finding out like you know in writing about the sixth sense how important that summer uh was at the box office in terms of phantom menace coming back and you know a, a film by a relatively unknown uh, director in Shyamalan and and the influence that Bruce Willis had, you know, in bringing people to that kind of thing, uh, but then doing that for each section of his career. And so it was a completely different animal. And um, I've told a few people this, like this one really, really kicked me sideways. Like it's I, I need like a like a year break of just like I think it was like I went from like one to one to one, you know, I was going to say you kind of never stopped writing a, yeah. a book of some sort. Yeah, and now I've I've gotten that out of my system. Good. That's good though. Good. I think you that's say good. That, I mean, but then like you'll also say things like thinking about what book four is going to be. And, and I don't doubt that another one will happen. I I do enjoy the process. I I really do. I just I need to not be doing that yeah. for a little while. So well, I mean, I think a huge portion of it is, and you nailed it because it's not as interview driven as your past books have been. Yeah. Something has to fill that gap. And that's you. You're the you're the person. But that's why, honestly, and I'm not blowing smoke. That's why this is my favorite of the three books that you've written, because it is a singular example of your voice and and your skills and your talents as a writer and a film critic and being able to put uh, pop culture uh, into a, a relevant context. And every single chapter I wrote, you know, I, I consider myself fairly decently familiar with with uh, Bruce's career, nowhere near where you are now. But there was so much context to uh, things that I never even took in perspective, you know, because so much of his career at the height of his career was really before I was paying attention to that sort of stuff. So it was yeah. really refreshing in a lot of ways to like even think about what was going on with him in the early 90s. And like I knew as a kid, like I knew who Bruce Willis was, but had no idea what some of the things were that were going on in pop culture and, and with film and television and in his life. Um, it's I'm honestly, I'm very excited to actually read it as a complete 
piece and not as uh, sort of puzzle pieces as I've sort of been popping in and out. It was good. Jay's feedback was great. He said, oh, Die Hard actually is a Christmas movie. And I said, it yeah, is. if I've convinced you of nothing else, Jake. I just I found myself flipping movie. and I was like, uh, that quote's not from my interview. That's quote's not from my interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that one is. That one is. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I would circle okay. it and go, this part's great. <laughs> and he would call all his friends. Guess what? <laughs> Guess what? I got to call my lawyers and be like, we really need to get on this. Guess what? My quote's on the DVD of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? You know how many people referenced me and that? <laughs> well, like, no, oh, you must my, feel horrible. <laughs> my my goal is to go three for three because uh, you wrote a book about Snyder Cut. I ended up on yeah. the Blu-ray. You wrote a book about Spider-Man. I ended up on the Blu-ray. So I need to find a way to retroactively on like an like get on like a Bruce Willis anniversary edition of like <laughs> Die Hard or Sixth Sense <laughs> or Pulp Fiction or find a way to be quoted <laughs> in some form or fashion for Bruce Willis so I can continue to bat a thousand. Here's what will happen. Quentin will figure out how to get Bruce in his final film. And you will give a quote. Specific, it's like Bruce's best performance. <laughs> and that's what will end up on the DVD box. And like at the premiere, like the quote, like unfurls on like this giant. <laughs> no, Bruce comes up to you on the carpet and he's like, I just want to let you know <laughs> that quote meant everything to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's the nicest thing everyone there's, has there's a, said about it, like you're like you're like next to me like but like just out of frame but like just <laughs> enough of your face to see a single tear roll down your cheek all right listen we gotta start the show if you're watching us <laughs> oh on God, youtube you started the show yet. no i gotta go through the housekeeping <laughs> notes um over awesome. on the youtube channel do me a favor uh hit subscribe turn on your notifications head down to the comments weigh in on the show uh we're gonna have a question that we want to ask you guys a little bit later on following the debate and i want to hear from you guys but in general that's a great place for you guys to interact with other people who enjoy real blend we want to thank all the people who have been finding us lately due to the christopher nolan interview the greta gerwig interview uh i've seen our subscriber numbers go up and a lot of new people interacting with us in the comments down below so welcome to everybody hope you enjoy the show you can find us if you want to see the visual element of it at youtube.com backslash real blend podcast and of course you can listen to an audio version all the different places that you get your audio needs met uh don't forget real blend premium if you want to sign up for that that gets you an ad-free version of the show and a newsletter uh written by me every other week so check the description for information on where to sign up all right so the big topic for this week um is the question about mission impossible dead reckoning whether or not it was a failure and gabe uh, to help the people better understand how we want to approach the concept sure. of failure. Can you catch them up on some some worthy statistics, I think? Yeah. So I think throughout the discussion, we'll it'll kind of we'll kind of show that it's a bit more nuanced than is it a failure by the numbers? Is it a failure by the audience? Is it a failure by this, that and the other? I think there's a lot that we want to go through. But to start us off, I want to give everyone a little bit of factual context about how the movie is doing um, from an audience standpoint and from a box office standpoint. And I think the discussion can kind of go from there. So uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, August 2nd. So as of right now, uh, according to the box, according to box office pro domestically, it's made $140.5 uh, million. Internationally, it's at 309 for a worldwide total of just under 450 million. Um, a little bit more context to how that's doing as far as week to week. This will be its fourth weekend that this is uh, that this episode drops. Um, in its second weekend, it dropped 65%, which is not like insane, but is at the higher end of normal um, or typical, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, bringing in 19.3 million in its second weekend domestically. Uh, in its third weekend, it dropped 45%. Uh, 
uh, bringing in just 10.7 million, um, which for a, a film that large does feel quite small. Some added context with the with the uh, box office, and and thank you for following me along with a bunch of numbers. Um, box Office Pro um, and as well as um, Box Office Mojo are great sources if you want to pull up your own for the folks at home. Uh, some resources. This film that currently has a just under four hundred fifty million dollar worldwide box office uh, had a budget of two hundred and ninety million dollars, according to IMDb Pro. And to give some comparisons on the worldwide total, now this film is not done yet, but it does feel like it's 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 petering out given how much Flat it's making telling. week to week. Yeah. Um, Fallout ended with seven hundred and eighty six point six million worldwide. Rogue Nation was six hundred and eighty eight point eight million worldwide, and Ghost Protocol was six hundred and ninety four point seven worldwide. Um, we'll come back around. I think you guys will want to touch on that and what that means. But quickly, the uh, the critical and audience reception. I'll give the caveat right here. If you are new to the show, we are firm believers that Rotten Tomatoes is not an end-all be-all number. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it is a way to at least gauge uh, a sort of consensus, a sort of idea of, of where the temperature in the room is, uh, even though you know certainly the audience score can be manipulated, as we've seen in the past, and even the critical score can sometimes feel a little different from how the conversation seems to be going, so... That's why podcasts are great. We can give you that nuance. But on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 96% from critics and a 94% from audience. Its cinema score um, is an A rating. So it's, I, I would say, uh, being received very well as far as the audience is concerned. But I'll let you guys start from there. Sean, do you want to take us over? That, that's the context, and feel free to reference this um, as we're discussing. But that's sort of where we're at um, as far as the facts that we can present of uh, Dead Reckoning Part One at this point. Yeah. So leading into this conversation, Gabe kind of asked us what side we would be on to even see if there was a debate. And if it wasn't just like 30 minutes of us being like, no, we agree with each other. Um, and I took the position of that. Yes, this is ultimately a failure um, in terms of the film and in terms of the franchise uh, of where we're going to remember Dead Reckoning Part One uh, as part of the larger series. Um, and I'll I'll throw the only caveat I'll throw on is that it's possible that, you know, when we get through part two, it might redeem some of the issues of part one or together feel like a really great story from beginning to end. But what what I've seen so far of it, I will call it a failure um, in terms of keeping me interested in the story. But more importantly than not, um, the reason why I'm going with the fact that it's a failure is because of the main goal of this movie should be to get it seen by as many people as possible. And it's just not reaching its audience. Uh, the audience is not responding to it. They're choosing to go to other things. I think it's suffering from a little bit of franchise fatigue that a lot of other movies are facing this summer with Transformers uh, kind of performing around the same numbers as Mission Impossible. It's at 429 worldwide. Mission Impossible is at 449. They're getting trumped by obviously more original programming, whether it be Oppenheimer or Barbie. Um, but this idea that if Tom Cruise does a Mission Impossible movie and if Tom Cruise specifically does a Mission Impossible movie with Christopher McQuarrie, it's going to make X, um, I think, has been disproven. And it's really interesting when you read those sort of fallout, the fallout numbers, ghost protocol numbers, like they were all north of 600 million. 
And now it feels like the bar for where mission is is supposed to be is lower. And I didn't think it was going to drop as quickly as it did because Gabe sort of said to us, like, it might get over 500 million. It's got a couple of other territories to reach. Is that 449 right now? But it's not going to cross six, which makes it instantly one of the more disappointing entries in the franchise because any franchise wants to keep going up. Now, is it going to do better than Fallout? No, of course not. You know, eventually it's going to have to start turning around. But to drop from whatever it was at seven something and then to come down to 449, maybe stop around 500. That's not good. And we can point at, at problems if we want to in terms of saying when it came out. Uh, would it have done better had they moved into a different release date? Probably. I think more people would have been uh, willing to go back out to the theaters to support this. Uh, this film landed right in the middle of a crunch of a very busy frame right before it. And then this sensation of Barbenheimer coming behind it that some people might have just looked at it and said, like, I can wait for this one. Uh, I'll catch up with it later. I'm going to wait to save my money for going to the theaters to go see one of those other two films. And th th these movies are not made for the I'll just wait for it on TV crowd that it's supposed to pull out the I'm going to go to a theaters to see what these guys have cooked up with. Um, and a big part of it, I think, is the stunt that they were advertising just wasn't as exciting as some of those other ones that you've seen him do before. And it's crazy to say that riding a motorcycle off of a cliff and base jumping, you know, free fall base jumping into a thing wasn't as exciting. It's, but it's funny you mentioned that because last time we talked about this, I and I won't I won't rehash that, but I talked about how I felt like the marketing kind of over not oversold, but sort of didn't do it justice as far as revealing too much. But I saw that take and I hadn't really thought of it that way. But you're right. Like the incredible that he did that. And it's it is it is still very incredible that Tom Cruise is doing those things and that, and that he rode a motorcycle off a cliff. Do not take anything away from the fact that that he could have died doing that. And that is incredible. But like visually and in the context of the film, it doesn't quite feel the same as watching a plane take off as he's holding on to it or jumping out of a plane with the with the cinematographer right there with him or the mm -hmm. camera person right there with him or climbing on the side of the world's tallest building like they're because it is a what it is it it doesn't quite hit the same striking visual um i think and i hadn't thought of it under that context until the last week or so but that's interesting but jake you think it's a success you think that no ultimately i didn't say that did, no oh, oh okay no. okay sorry. <laughs> okay i didn't say it's a, that it's a success i just think it's a little harsh to call it a failure mm. i i I think if Gabe had presented this debate as is Mission Impossible a disappointment, then at that point I might be sort of hedging a little bit and going, well, you know, um, but, you know, OK, here's the thing. And, and I feel like I'm going to be hedging and splitting hairs a lot in, in, in the defense of, of Mission Impossible. Um, so much of a movie's success rate, whether or not we determine whether or not it's success, oftentimes is relative to its budget. I feel like if Mission Impossible were $100 million cheaper, we really wouldn't be having this conversation. But because of COVID delays, which are really out of their control, uh, it's it got inflated to what, like a $300 million budget. Just about. So it's, you know, the, it's. And do you think, Jake, while you're on that, do you think that given the competition of Barbenheimer, we talk about like it's hard to gauge what a marketing yeah. budget is but they often you know can can outweigh the production budget in a in a stance but that we don't necessarily have that number do you think because of the competition because it had such a short window in IMAX do you think that marketing budget is also inflated than what it might normally be like could this what, be doubly bad not even just that but like correct me if I'm wrong and I I couldn't find uh 
an exact confirmation for this particular film, but doesn't Tom Cruise often work in deals to get like a chunk of first dollar grosses? Like I have a feeling that a, Probably. you know, in terms of the the final net profits, if there are going to be any that are that would bring this movie into the black, he's getting paid before Paramount's getting paid, mm-hmm. uh, which is another big chunk of of sort of the the profits that you know not that not that Tom Cruise should hand the movie back to the money back to Paramount. That's not what I'm saying, <laughs> right. but. But I think that there are just so many determining factors. I, I do think it's it's a little unfair that we're judging the final worldwide tally against a budget that was massively inflated because of COVID. They had, you know, it's it's not like a uh, an Indiana Jones situation where you just go, they just spent three hundred million dollars on that. That's kind of on them. The fact that they couldn't recoup recoup its losses, they should have just scaled back a little bit. It doesn't really sound like Macquarie and Cruz ever intended to make this a $300 million film. It just was what it was. And it also makes me wonder if with them being shut down because of the writers and the actors strike, if they're running into another similar situation with part two, if, if the inflation is going to be or if the budget is going to be inflated because of situations out of their control. The wait, fact that why aren't people buying tickets, though, like why isn't it making as much money as the other missions? That's what I want to get because the moment that, you know, and we often talk about how the mission series was always one that had legs. It was always one that people went to in the weeks after the minimal drops. That was sort Mm -hmm. of what he was known for with this series. And that moment was taken away, not just by the phenomenon that is Barbenheimer, but quite frankly, because of Sound of Freedom. I think one of the things that they were considering was, well, Yes, you know, we've got we've only got about 12 days of the premium screens and yes, Oppenheimer and Barbie will make a splash, but we'll kind of why we'll kind of um, sort of follow in the wake and pick up a lot of what's left over. I was sort of equated to like, you know, those fish that follow behind whales Then you know, the, when the whales don't catch the fish, the fish sort of grab what the whales sure, don't get. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, I think the, all that money was taken up by Sound of Freedom. I, really? I think you know, it wasn't that I think Paramount underestimated uh barbenheimer it's that they had no idea that sound of freedom was going to be the phenomenon that it was and an older movie going audience the audience that normally discovers uh these mission movies a couple of weeks later instead and again we're talking about an audience that maybe only goes and sees one or two movies a year instead of their movie of the summer being mission impossible their movie of the summer was sound of freedom all right but to a certain extent then i want to point out that I think one of the reasons why Sound of Freedom, if, if it's one of those movies that that did steal away that attention, is because there isn't a buzz around Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning right now. There isn't a strong word of mouth so that let's use this crowd as an example. <clears throat> the crowd that shows up to maybe go see Oppenheimer, um, but they don't have their tickets in advance and it's sold out and they go, all right, well, what else am I going to go see? Well, they might have heard a headline of like this Sound of Freedom film, which is over uh producing, you know, which is making a bigger splash than people anticipated, but they haven't heard anything about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. They don't know if it's any good. They know it's another Mission Impossible, but it's not like there's this urgency from people being like, oh, my God, it's so great. You got to go see it sort of deal. So I do think that the fact that Dead Reckoning is just lacking in a in a buzz, it doesn't necessarily have that that heat going for it that most of these movies have had up until this point. You know, I you came out of Fallout and just raved about it and and wanted yeah. to tell everybody, like, you got to go see this on the big screen. It's terrific. Henry Cavill's a great addition and all this jazz. And it just doesn't feel like Dead Reckoning got that bit. 
Well, this summer, it almost feels like, because you have to keep in mind, like it was, you know, when, when Fallout came, came out, that was another life ago. That was another world ago. That was <laughs> yeah. a completely different environment than, than yeah. what's coming out now. Uh, it almost feels like in the summer movie season these days, uh, a, a movie has to be an event, you yeah. know, for it to actually, you know, it, it can't just be good. Being good is not good enough anymore. Being great is not good enough anymore. It has to be a as he experienced last summer, a Top Gun-like phenomenon. It has to be a Barbenheimer-like phenomenon. It has to be, even though I feel like it was subdued, it still made the money, it has to be an Avatar The Way of Water-like phenomenon where it's like, God, like everyone's talking about it, and I wasn't really planning on it, but, well, damn, now I got to go. I don't think anyone uh, doubted that there was a Mission Impossible movie in theaters. I don't think anyone doubted that it, the quality of it was, I mean, the reviews were there, the audience reaction, the cinema score was there. Uh, I think it just didn't have that X factor of this feels like an event that everyone's talking about that I have to go in the way that, you know, it almost reminds me of this. This feels very reminiscent to uh, when Mission Impossible 3 came out mm-hmm. because it felt sort of this. And also this is a very similar conversation that was had because you had Mission Impossible 2, which came out and did way better than than one did. Uh, and then three came out, which everyone seemed to like when it came out and reviews were positive and and people were saying, OK, maybe this is a rejuvenation. But it did pretty lackluster numbers. In fact, uh, Dead Reckoning Part One has already surpassed it worldwide mm. uh, in, in the worldwide tally. And there was that conversation of like, is this done? Remember, that was sort of the reason they started bringing in Renner for four because there was sort of this speculation of okay. is Tom Cruise going to be handing the reins of the series over to Renner and then after uh, what was it uh, Ghost Protocol Ghost, four, Protocol, Ghost, Protocol, after yeah. Ghost Protocol turned into the phenomenon and kind of rejuvenated mm-hmm. uh, the, the DNA of the franchise then it sort of went like okay cool now now it's sort of because Ghost Protocol feels like when the series became what it is now yeah right? I think so mm-hmm. yeah and I think I think three to an extent really was the seed of that it maybe didn't get the credit of of moving past what one and two was but yes i think ghost ghost protocol definitely yeah i want to ask there's a couple questions i want to ask but more broadly i want to ask both of you as far as consequences of this underwhelming whether you consider it a failure underwhelming or a massive success wherever you fall on the scale uh for dead reckoning part one where do you see this changing the franchise moving forward do you see any course correction do you see anything happening again strikes and everything aside of of you know things that that obviously they can't control at the moment um how do you think this run for for dead reckoning part one is going to affect what they do whether part two or beyond do you do you see any consequences well i don't know about you guys i've been very sort of confused about this because well one i mean they're already halfway through part two so i can't really see them making any major course corrections other than Cruz looking at the numbers and going all right guys we got to come up with some really last minute crazy ass stunts which he wouldn't really have time to prepare for um i was always and cut Simon to, cut to Tom sort of, Cruise opening up a hangar and he's like, yeah, guys, yeah. This is, Let's, I got a plane. I'm going to jump yeah. off of this and, and then I'm going to skyrocket to the moon. We got to we got to do this. You know, I uh, it was funny. Like, seriously, but like it doesn't make you wonder, like, dude, if you're going to do the space stunt, why don't you do the space stunt in mission like that? You like, know, what, honestly, what, what, it, it had no idea what I'm talking about. But how incredible of a story would it be if they were like, yeah, we were going to do that in another movie. But we were like, we got to up our game. So we moved up our so space we moved, stunt. Yeah, we got to, to mission. <laughs> to mission. Like, didn't you guys go into Dead Reckoning Part 1, like, thinking or having heard somewhere that this was the end? Because my, my understanding yeah. was... He was doing these last two, and then that was the end of mission. And then all of a sudden, all these stories came out and said, "No, he wants to play this character into his into yes. his eighties." Like that's it why was, 
You're uh, right. But then was... again, I had Simon Pegg on my morning show and I brought that up. I said, dude, I, I thought this was the end. And he said, like, we never said that. Like, he goes, that's that that was sort of a narrative that got started and people kind of started rolling with. Oh, but we, ne- we I, never came out and said that this is the end. Yeah, I don't know that anyone was quoted on it. That is I, I assume if Simon Pegg said that, then that's true. But I think what it came from, what I remember it coming from was they had these two and then he has like three other projects um, sure. that he was booked to do. And so I think that's where the assumption came about, like, well, when is he going to get to make another mission? Yeah, this must be the end. They got that's a two parter dead reckoning. It's the, you know, so I think maybe maybe that's right. And it was more of an inference based on, you know, based on an educated guess of like he's yeah. going to be tied up for the next five or six years in these other projects. Um, Sean, did you get to speak to that consequences you think moving forward? I don't think that there are any in the immediate term. Um, I think. Paramount would be wise to wait and see how part two performs. I don't think they could point to um, Macquarie, you know, as being an issue right. necessarily. Maybe they just chalk this one up to just it, it didn't turn out the way we wanted it. Like people, no, didn't, one, didn't, no didn't, one could have predicted Barbenheimer. There's there's no sure. no one could have predicted. There's that, that that once in a lifetime kind of phenomenon. And again, if the studio's smart and not reactionary, they look at the fact that it has what is it? Ninety six percent with critics and 94 with audiences like no one's saying it's a bad movie and it's not like it's even though i'm not crazy about it i'd still be a fresh like that's why this is a little bit flawed like i have issues with the movie but if i were to have to give it one of the tomatoes i'm still saying like no 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 it's still good (laughs) go see it one of the Um, tomatoes so i think that like they these guys have earned the right to at least get one more shot at it if the second one doesn't do as well or or meets the the level of this one, then I think that they start to think about like, OK, are we actually going to go forward with this franchise um, if if it seems like the temperature is cooling on it with the audience? Because any movie that's, you know, any franchise that's eight films into it, as good as they've been, has to start looking at like, all right, how many of these are we cranking okay, out? But let me ask you this. Why don't we have these sort of conversations about the Fast and Furious franchise? Because they've been bad movies since like, yeah. I, like I think with four, five and six of mission, these are all time action bangers. Sure. You know, I, I, if Fast and Furious continued the quality that it had in Fast Five and we were just like, wow, they are just cranking it out time after time. But we can say this now because Kevin's not on this episode. Yeah. They've gone downhill. <laughs> yes. Uh, and with eight, you know, eight was like kind of laughably bad that uh, that's when the rock pushed the submarine missile yeah. or whatever I, it was. Yeah, I think to your point, the reason why the conversation is different is they both have the X factor of their stars. Like like uh, Mission has the X factor of Tom Cruise. And we're just assuming that Tom Cruise only wants to make a good interest. He's not going to turn in a movie that he doesn't believe in or, or that he doesn't think pushes the envelope and whether that's story or stunts or whatever, like we know that that's, that is Tom Cruise's goal. Whereas with Vin Diesel, we don't really know if he's ever going to stop because his goal just seems to be to make more of them. Like, and again, I don't, I know people love that. And I, I, and I especially don't mean to just, you know, talk, talk trash because Kevin's not here, but, but I do think that's the different X factor. The X factor of Vin Diesel is as long as they'll pay him to do it. And as long as they're making upwards of a billion dollars like they don't really care the quality of it because the franchise has built itself to a point where most of the audience is kind of in on the joke and is just expecting sort of silly stuff so here's a major component of this though because i think if they were to stop the mission franchise i think that tom cruise has another chapter you know, that I want him to get to. Yeah, I really that's, want that's that. what I wanted to bring up. Like if there were going to be consequences, this those would be the consequences I wouldn't mind seeing. Yeah. 
Yeah. The, the, start the character actor dramas, start yeah. the return to collaborating with, you know, pro, high profile directors are going to get the best out of you. That sort of, you know, Jerry Maguire run that he yeah. went on for a long period of time, but bring it back Dude, around. Go, go back to Born on the Fourth of July and, and Color of Money. And I mean, it's it's it, I, I really do as much look as much as I, I, I think I love the mission movies more than most people. But as much as I love them. I know he still has a Magnolia in him. I yeah. know he still has, 100%. you know, and I still, I know he still has a collateral in him. Like, yeah, I, I you dude, like, I, I almost want to tell him like, you, you've done your time, man. Like you've, you, yeah. you've risked your lives. You got us in the theaters. Yep. You've had Spielberg literally look you in the eyes and say, you saved movie right. theaters. You saved cinema. Like, like let's flex some more muscles. It's, also, it's time for leg day. Yep. It's not that, it's not that his performance <laughs> as ethan hunt is bad it, right like, he, he like, could just at, do it in his sleep though. like look at Ma- exactly like look at maverick like he turned in a fantastic performance yeah. as, as mag as maverick but i watching dead reckoning it felt like a the feeling of a bad quote-unquote bad performance because it just we've just seen everything yeah. that ethan hunt, i'm like i get it he's just gonna try to save everyone yeah i get it he's gonna fall in love or just like become in incredibly interested in like a care for the new team member or woman in his life or like, like he's just been through all the emotions. I don't know that it's ever going to reach the emotional height of, of three with, with Philip Seymour Hoffman and with his, you know, like it, the character has just been, been done, you know? And I think that what I wanted to end on before we, before we move on, I want to ask you guys, if you, let's say you're given the keys to the mission castle. um, Do you, close it out and then you give it a break and then you know tom cruise comes on as the the producer and they they start mission impossible one over again here's a new thing uh or do you sunset ethan hunt into a man in the chair maybe tom cruise makes a cameo maybe he doesn't and then you evolve the franchise like what do you think they would do what would you do if that's a fair question I would like to see Ethan, you know, get his last crusade final shot and, and right off into the sunset. And yeah. then if you can do it, you know, he made a he made a comment about respecting Harrison Ford coming back into his 80s to play Indiana Jones. Give us the chance to miss him for a little bit. I'm, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that we have mission fatigue. It's not quite in the, in the way that we've talked about other franchises on this show, because um, I do still get excited every time a new one comes out. But could you imagine like he gets, you know, he, he rides off in the sunset. He has his moment. And then because if there's anyone who can do it, it's him. And it's really would only be, in theory, a 20 year wait. He comes back in his 80s and and 80 year old Tom Cruise pulling off some of these stunts. And pushing himself. <laughs> I just don't know. I just don't know. He, he could do it like and then oh. and then it's like a, oh, and then it really does become a like, oh, my God, can't he do this? Can he? At what point do you start to feel bad? Up? You're watching an 80 year old man <laughs> dangling from a, from a we plane. Did. It was called Dial of Destiny. Oh, <laughs> oh, you love Dial of Destiny. I did. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. Um, here's my pitch for what they should do, because Paramount should not get rid of mission. Uh, IPs are extremely valuable and every studio wants to have some type of franchise that they can continue to crank uh, sequels out of. But you glass onion it. You hold on to Ving Rhames and then you get new mm. people for every new mission mm. and it becomes a, hey, who's going to be the cast of the new mission and what, oh, what that's thing is they going to have to go on? Not continuity, individual missions, individual stories. Maybe it's Simon Pegg. You know, one of those two becomes the the connective tissue. You better and be then careful, it Sean. allows you to later bring Ethan in. But you bring Ethan in. If, if Ethan ever has to come back, he comes back as the bad guy. 
Like he has oh, to come back oh, as the wow. one who's gone. Humanity deserves to die. I'm going to end the world. <laughs> that he becomes back as that. It, it, right. He's the AI yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> he's programmed Sean, you, the uh, he's the you gotta be, you gotta be careful. You come up with one more good idea that you're going to have to go on strike. I think, I, think oh. actually, <laughs> I don't know that they'll let you, uh, I think I'm going to write a book about it now. Yeah. Uh, but Sean, we moved up our question of the week before we before we throw it to the break. What is our question we of the week? Yes, we want you guys to head to the um, the the comments down below and let us know on a scale of one through ten, with ten being get here now tomorrow, and one being boy, I don't even know if, we'll, if I'm going to rent this when it comes around. Uh, what is your excitement level for Dead Reckoning Part Two? So let us know in the comments down below that on a scale of one to ten. What is your excitement level for Dead Reckoning Part 2? And, and when we get down to ultimately why um, this movie, why I'm still saying it's a failure, is that when I got to the end of Part 1, I wasn't hyped up. I wasn't like, oh, my God, I got to see what happens next. Like it it ended and I was just like, hmm. well, I'm a little surprised that they didn't give it more of a right. I mean, for a for a part one, I really thought I walked into it thinking, Oh man, this it's going to be an insane cliffhanger. I'm really yep. excited to see. Mm -hmm. uh, I never really considered the fact that Across the Spider Verse would have a better cliffhanger ending than Dead Reckoning Part One. But it did, and that's but why you're on the cover, Jake Hamilton, because it's one of the best Spider -Man, Spider Man movies ever made. All right, well, let's throw it to a really quick break. And uh, what game? I'm sorry, I, I was, was going to make a Kevin joke. I was say, well, it's it's half of one of the best. Yeah. I was going to make it for Kevin. That was for Kevin. That was the first half of your quote, right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. We'll get the rest of it uh, at a date to be determined. <laughs> Dude, what if I quote for for uh, for the the next Spider Verse is like, "Meh, I was wrong. I was wrong." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't just keep saying it every time. I'm trying to get a quote yeah. on the box. That's how I'll get on to Beyond the Spider Verse. I'll say the real best Spider Man movie <laughs> ever made, Sean O'Connell. But he'll start his quote with "Jake was wrong." Jake this was wrong. Is the best. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, on the other side of this really quick break, we're going to review Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then again, our guest this week is Ali Saleem talking about uh, Secret Invasion on Disney+. Plus. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
And we are back. Okay, so in theaters this week is the animated Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. And if you've been paying any sort of attention, it is getting uh, incredible reviews. And I would like to throw a little bit of cold water on that um, because I didn't love it. And I wish I did. And like, like. People aren't saying like, hey, it's pretty good. Everyone's like, this is amazing. One of the best, you know, and maybe it is the best Turtles movie ever. But I think the bar is a little bit low in terms of that. It's not like we had a terrific Turtles movie leading up to this. Four words for you. Secret of the ooze. Yeah, no, I just I never really got into those. Those are so cheesy. They look like um, the Turtles from that uh, from those movies look like they belong in like a Chuck E. Cheese. What was the the animatronics? Yeah. What is the secret? of What was the ooze's secret? I'm not telling you. The oh. secret was Vanilla Ice. Oh, okay. All right. Well. Should have stayed secret, to be honest with you. <laughs> I went back and rewatched Ninja Rap, the, the, the video for that, yeah. uh, in order to make my joke. It's so bad. Like, it's <laughs> like, like I, I, to the point where as I was they, watching it, I was like, was this actually entertaining? Like, to be coming to the defense when, of a movie that I probably have not seen in over 25 years. Sean, that is in the movie somehow. Is it like a remix or do they just straight up do Vanilla Ice's? It's but in it's, the new movie? Isn't it? Yeah, it is. It plays oh, yeah. over the radio of a car. Oh, okay, so it's, they didn't like they didn't like remix it or something. Okay. No, no, no. It's a very brief nod to it, just to sort of say cool. that it's in there. All right, That's so fun. let me let me start off by saying that um, I think it's a really good idea <clears throat> that they have brought the turtles back. I think it's a concept that they can uh, revive every couple of years and try to get a new audience for it. And the animation uh, for this is really, really great. Um, I got a chance to speak with the director. Uh, for an interview that we did for Cinema Blend before the strike happened. Uh, and he was talking about the way that he he does this animation. It, it it It's like done by pencil, it almost looks like. And it looks like it's um, messy in a way that like a lot of the pencil lines are still there. Um, and the way that he described the backgrounds, because they look kind of unfinished to the point where like there will be sketches of where a building should be, but it kind of stops Um, And but it's deliberate. You can tell it's deliberate. And he goes, we really wanted it to have a feel of like if a teenager were drawing this, that eventually they'd be like, well, I don't have time to put all the windows in the skyscraper. So I'm only going to do a few of them kind of thing. So all that was by design. And I think it looked great. I really do like it. Really cool. That's a great explanation. I want to mention while you're on the animation, uh, I don't know if you guys saw Chris Miller's tweet about this. I don't think he has anything to do with this movie, but I think he's worked with some of the, the people. But he had a really great context for like what supporting this movie means. And he gave some insight and in, in sort of how the industry works. And he was talking about how how uh, Spider-Verse was sort of invented to show or part of Spider-Verse's sort of intention is to show all these different varieties of animation that are mm-hmm. possible and how creative animators can be and sort of validate that approach. And that the one-two punch of TMNT would really show uh, studios, studio execs in particular, that that it's okay to place a bet on a new style because they've That's found cool. that they're really scared to do something in a new style. Like, like when an animation style works, they're like, well, why would we do it differently? What if they don't like it? Mm. Um, and so he sees this as like an inflection point for for the animation industry of, of really loosening the reins and being able to say like, no, it works when you give something, which to us makes sense, but you could, you know, people with the hundreds of millions of dollars are like, don't change anything. I thought that was a really fascinating point of view. On well, and on awesome. the heels of the st- president of Paramount, I want to say Brian Robbins is, is the head of the yeah. studio. They're saying like, it does, we're not going to invest in original concepts uh, for animation. We're only going to churn out familiar IP that people want to invest in as yeah. he's got a, another Turtles movie coming to theaters. Um, 
one other creative thing that I want to point out that they do in this that I do think really works. And when Seth Rogen said it at CinemaCon, it made all the sense in the world and seeing it executed makes all the sense in the world. They got teenagers to voice the turtles, Brilliant. like yeah. actual legitimate teenagers. And it's perfect. Like the minute I heard it, I was like, oh, duh, why wouldn't they have done that before? That makes so much sense. It's crazy that for uh, something called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that it took this long to actually make them yeah. actual right. teenagers. Right. And the director did say, like, when they pitched it to him, he kind of thought to himself, like, oh, cool. What, you know, what comedians are we going to get to step up and voice the different turtles? So the boys, I got a chance to sort of talk to them in their interviews, and they said the most fun they have is listening to a lot of whispers in between their scripted lines that they made to make fun of each other or to crack jokes. Yeah. And that Jeff Rowe went back in and like heard all of them and yeah. kind of animated to their riffs sort of thing. Oh, so all of that funny. works. There was the a only clip. problem is. Oh, oh ahead, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm, 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 I think it's a full two hours. And if it isn't a full two hours, it felt it. It just it starts to feel really long after after a period of time. Um, and I just wasn't interested in it. Like I, I enjoyed it for about an hour and then I was like, all right, I've, I've tapped out like this is a, a bit much. And so I, I don't know how kids are going to respond to it, to be honest with you. I don't I don't know if kids are into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at all. I don't know if this is going to be the movie that introduces them to it. Um, I just found it a little bit slow after about the first hour and then the end kind of being a bit of a mess. So I can't say I loved it nearly as much as everybody else did. I liked it and I think the animation style is OK, but it's not like I came out of it like I did with something like Spider-Verse where I was just raving about, you know, this is a groundbreaking piece of animation. It looks like it's coming in at an hour thirty nine. Jeez, oh, um, wow! So that's I, I'm really excited for this. The, the marketing for it has been really good. I it's been, it. I had that sort of experience where I got sold on it, and so I've I've haven't watched everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cast set, like looks great. Like there's that clip where they're they're telling uh, Ice Cube Superfly about the ooze, and I forget what he calls it. Like he calls it like goo or something like that. He goes, "No, we call it ooze," and they're like ooze, ooze, and they're like <laughs> they have that. I think what you're talking about of the whisper and sort of interplay. Yeah, uh, but I wanted to ask, how was does he get a lot, and how was uh, Jackie Chan as Splinter? He doesn't get as much to do until the end. Um, okay. Like a lot of the plot line is the turtles disobeying him and going out into the city. So there's long periods of time where he's just left behind in the sewer and kind of wondering where they are. Um, there's a really adorable uh, moment in the beginning where he tells their backstory and they have little baby turtles and it's really, really <laughs> sweet. Um, but then he'll just disappear for chunks. The same, isn't their backstory the same moment uh, as Daredevil? Uh, I yes. I don't know if that's the case in this movie, but I have heard that happening, that that's like the it's same the radioactive same, the same, yeah, bit that blinds moment. him kind of thing. Um, just a quick update, because we are recording on Wednesday, August 2nd, which is the actual release date. Um it did a little under four million in previews last night. Wow! They're, pre- they're predicting on a Tuesday uh, about a thirty to forty million five day opening. That feels a little low to me. I don't know. What, what do you What do you guys think? I can yeah, see I it outperforming. Feel like they should that. be happy with that. I yeah. think that I think they should be pleased with that for a five day opening from Wednesday um, to Sunday. Let me see. Let's look at our I good friends good at at uh box office pro <clears throat> who's been very good i'm gonna keep going yeah, to them they, until they, they miss they really crushed it please because box office they have ruined their site no <laughs> joke they have um tmnt coming in third place with projected 43.9 i honestly um, don't know what the bar is on this friday to from friday to sunday uh no i think that's the i think that's the full 
uh, full. opening full. I think it was full. Yeah, I think three day weekend forecast is twenty eight point eight. What do they have? Uh, what do they have the Meg doing? Twenty three point four, but they have Barbie at sixty two and a half and Oppenheimer at another thirty. Could you imagine Barbie <clears> makes sixty two in its third weekend? Yeah. <laughs> oh my yeah. god! You know what's crazy? If like if <laughs> Barbie had opened ball. at sixty on its first weekend, I feel like we all would have been like, "Oh, it's a good number. Like that's good." Yeah, that's good. absolutely. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with turtles, I just don't. I don't know if the recognition value is there. Um, but it also you think feels so? like with animation, I feel like there's a whole generation, like my generation, Jake's generation. I feel like there's a really wide couple. Two or three generations long that whether it was oh, the comics, the, turtles, the games, turtles were it for me when I was a kid, man. I think every, and Power Rangers. I think there's a lot of people that just have like a, they just enjoy the characters yeah. mm. to some extent, like nostalgically speaking. Yeah. Because um, I got a, <laughs> I got a box of toys uh, sent to me for the turtles, and uh, I kept one of each. They're gonna go behind me at some oh, point cool. here. But then there's like Funko Pops and all these other things. So we have neighbors who live down the street from us and they have two little boys and they uh, opened up the box and the mom was like, oh, yeah, look, look at these. They're turtles, but they know karate and they <laughs> love pizza. And the kids are looking at her like, I don't get any of this. What are you talking about? So I guess if you grew up with them, it makes a little bit more sense. But and to be yeah. fair, I think this is this is I think you mentioned this. This is like the chance to introduce it to a new audience. So sure. Yeah, we shall see. Um, you know, look, Speaking I think of, with animation, actually, it's been harder to predict. Like, look at Elemental. Elemental's doing incredibly yeah, well yeah, yeah. and finding its legs. So maybe Turtles does does better. I'm oh, sorry, Jiggy. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say just a quick little fun story. I feel like you guys all appreciate that made me feel old because Gabe mentioned um, <laughs> introducing things to a new audience. Um, my girlfriend and I took uh, her daughter and her niece to go see Barbie over the weekend. And when the movie was over, I mentioned to her uh, 12 year old niece, I said, hey, you know, that song that all the kids sing, that was my first concert. Like, I, you know, that's that's, you know, that was the first group I ever saw live was was Matchbox 20. 20. And uh, she said, oh. I didn't know that was a real song. (laughs) I thought they just made it for the movie. And that's when I was like, oh, yeah. okay." It's really fitting because Sheeran, too, didn't you? We did go see Ed Sheeran. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So weird. I was just say that's fitting because Jake has the most kinergy of anyone on the site or on really? the on the show. He really uh, does. I am, really I am does. more than kinough. Without question. <laughs> I um, loved that. I loved that shirt. Yeah. That was so such a funny cutaway to yeah. him in the hoodie. <laughs> so we have an interview um, that I want to throw it to. And this is going to bring us back around to Secret Invasion because you guys know me. I'm ride or die Marvel. I'll be there till the to bitter end. A lot of dying. Me and Kevin Feige are going to be sitting there at the very end <laughs> watching Loki season seven or whatever it's going to be. Hey, I'll watch that. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to get uh, Ali Salim on the show to come on and talk about Secret Invasion, specifically the finale um, and and how it is going to affect the MCU moving forward or, or if it's even going to affect the MCU going forward. And he has a couple of answers in terms of that. And then how much creativity he was able to bring to the show with regards to the decisions that they wanted to do that was best for their story, whether it was going to affect the MCU moving forward. So I appreciated his candor and talking about like how difficult it could be to sort of put a story like this together when it's going to have an impact on something like the Marvels that might be coming out later this year. Um, and we got a chance to jump on the phone right after the finale. So without further ado, uh, if you've listened to or if you've watched Secret Invasion, I should let people know that we do talk pretty openly about stuff that happens in the finale. So. Um, Feel free to dive into our interview with uh, Secret Invasion director Ali Salim. And then on the other side of it, we're going to talk about our reactions to the finale and the series as a whole. 
Hey, Ollie, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? I'm wonderful. Congratulations on bringing the show to a close. Thank you. I wish I was interviewing you because you have that kind of room where I can ask questions all day long. <laughs> and DVDs and posts are fantastic. It's the it's the best portrayal of the inside of my brain that I could give anybody. This might be the best portrayal of the inside of my brain. So <laughs> that tells you where I am right now. All right. Let's get right to the hard questions. Uh, obviously, everybody wants to know the minute that they found out that Rose had been hiding away someplace, uh, how long he's been in there. What are you able to tell me about how long he's been held captive? Well, it's it's no secret. Um and I don't hold the secret. I do think there's uh, a really strong reference that he's been there since he was um, kidnapped from Captain America. Okay. Um, and after saying that, I think it's a great opportunity for fans to revisit every roadie moment and unpack it in a new interpretation that he was actually a scrawl in that moment. Um but I don't think there's anything definitive. I think it's just something to explore. Same thing with Everett Ross, then I would imagine. We'd have to go back to some of his appearances in the Black Panther films and and maybe think about when that might have happened. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's going to be good fodder for conversation that is uh, we'll have a better life without a definitive answer. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's very true. It's it's going to make us rethink so many things that we watched up until this point. So obviously, all of us who have read the comics, you know, got so excited by the concept of the Super Scroll and, and your interpretation of how it was going to be visualized. And in the finale, we get to see it finally fully realized and not just in one person, but in a in a fantastic battle. I want you to talk about the different powers that you guys decided were going to be visualized um, and maybe some of the challenges you had to figure out in terms of the logistics of how they worked in a fight. Um, and then if there were any that potentially you wanted to use some hero powers that maybe you didn't get a chance to. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I will say um, a lot of the decision about what and where came from Marvel, from Kevin Feige, who mm -hmm. said everything is fair game any okay. power of all time. And I think that's expressed really well when Gravik takes the vial from Nick Fury and puts it in the computer and analyzes it. And we see every superpower ever from the MCU. And then um, a fight like that is an incredible team effort of months of storyboarding, followed by months of stunt development, followed by breaking down the storyboards and the stunt development into shots that will best showcase the fight and then visual effects steps in and fills in too. And I know that there were superpowers that didn't make sense in that moment in the fight. And there were superpowers that we added on that made total sense in the context of the fight. So um, I would say it's a combination of storytelling and storytelling constraints that put us where we are. But I think the fight is um, thrilling and something that uh, fans have been waiting for for a long time. The shot that I love the most is when um, Amelia's got the Captain Marvel uh, flight power, but Gravik is still falling do down toward the ground. And you see that that cloud of smoke that goes around when he lands. That's just fantastic. All credit goes to Aaron Borland and the VFX department. That The way that fight ended up is really a piece of majestic work from visual effects. 
How much fun that a, a director quite often gets to, you know, have the one hero that they play around with and in an opportunity you got to play with several at one time at that point in terms of their powers. Yeah. And at the same time, for me, it was always Gaia. It was mm -hmm. Amelia Clark being the strong, badass woman that she's destined to be and watching her do it. And all of the superpowers that she possessed and exhibited are merely tools in making her a strong, powerful, focused woman, which I love. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to that point where we're, talk we're talking about superpowers, um, but they didn't really surface until the finale. This was a character driven show. Uh, and you had an incredible ensemble to bring you through this series. There were, you know, obviously standout scenes. The one I'm going to go back to is is Sam and Don Cheadle having their verbal face off. Uh, we had some really sentimental scenes that where you had Ben Mendelsohn and Amelia Clark. Um, what's a moment where you actually just sat back and, and watched, you know, two members of your cast sort of go at it and just thought, like, this is incredible to see these two doing this in a quote unquote superhero film, but really has dramatic effect. Yeah, it's a good it's good question. I think, um, you know, first of all, it's it's not really a superhero film. It's the Nick Fury story. And Nick yeah. Fury is a human catalyst that walks us into a story either mostly about humans, uh, Olivia Coleman and um, and also about the humanity in aliens like Ben Mendelsohn and Amelia Clark. So I think it's a very human scaled story that deals with um, questions of of doubt and fear that Nick has within himself, his sense of other, the fact that he married a Skrull and how can that ever work out? Um, so the questions were very human and required human superpowers like persuasion and empathy and <laughs> negotiation and not flying through the air. So it never, it, I never felt like those things were missing from it. Um, Sitting back, I have to say there were many scenes where I just sat back and admired what was happening before the camera, which is kind of my job anyway, to create an environment, not to give direction or to say how it will be, but just to create an environment where those wonderful things can happen. And they happened in episode one between uh, Kobe and Sam in the bar, very small, quiet scene, but I think they explored things that those two characters had never explored between Olivia Coleman and Sam Jackson in the library in episode one, almost any scene between Ben Mendelsohn and Sam Jackson's is beautiful. They're such good friends. The one you mentioned, Don and Sam, who have been friends for decades and never had the chance to act together. And it, it was I mean, who am I decades later? Who am I to say, what if you you just sit back and watch it happen? And when it's happening, fantastic. And my, you know, Amelia Clark, I just cannot get enough watching her up close, what she can do. And she's got great scene in episode one with Ben, a great scene in episode five with Sam that deeply moved me. So to that end, OK, so uh, I want to see plenty of Amelia Clark, you know, as much as possible in the MCU not just for the powers that you have saddled her with, but now this intriguing team up with uh, Olivia Coleman. What exactly are you hinting at there in terms of the partnership that they might be establishing going forward? I am not deflecting your question in any way, but that's a good question for Kevin Feige. I, <laughs> I have no plans for the future of the MCU because whatever they are would be um, not as good as Kevin Feige's plans. Um, I like that scene at the end where they 
meet up because it has the potential to launch something really interesting, mm -hmm. but it also, I think, resolves our story in an interesting way. I think it it brings together what um, what Nick Fury had. I, I want to say Sam Jackson, but Nick Fury had been hoping for, which is, and what Ben Mendelsohn had been hoping for, which is, we need to talk. We need to negotiate and we need to get along and coexist. And I think those two women are an expression of that. And if it goes on from there, I'll be the first one to buy a ticket. And if it doesn't go on from there, I feel a great sense of resolution. That makes a lot of sense. Um, OK, so you, this series throughout the course of it trained us not to trust what we were seeing with our very own eyes. Um, and so I'm curious are you actually able to confirm the deaths of Maria Hill and even Talos, or is it potentially some sort of deception? That's a great question for Kevin Feige. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I, this story takes place in present day. Mm -hmm. I can completely see uh, a, a Marvel movie or show happening that takes place before 2023, 2024, and Maria Hill would, of course, be there because she wouldn't be dead yet. Sure. Uh, Talos coming back in a future. I don't know. They, I, I think I recall that they burned his body. I don't know if a Skrull can come back from Ash, but maybe. I think that's the beauty of the MCU is anything could happen. Very true. Um, and, and to that end, I wanted to ask you just one more continuity question. Um, is just throughout the course of your show running the trailer for the Marvels drops and of course features, you know, Nick Fury prominently. And I'm curious in terms of how you had to work with, did that sort of tell you where you had to leave the character? Um, or did you have real freedom to, to bring the, the, the arc to where you wanted it to end the way I think you the, wanted it? The answer to both questions is yes. I think there's a lot of freedom to tell the story that we need to tell. Mm -hmm. And the only requirement was that at the end he went up. <laughs> and, and so we're like, okay, that's easy. He goes up. So, um, so yeah. So the answer to both your questions is yes. Gotcha. Um, I want to talk about Kingsley, uh, who was just a tremendous performer and gave such um, gravity to to Gravic. I hate to sort of put it that way. Um, to the point where in the finale, when he's accusing Nick of saying like all of this falls back on you, it's a very you know uh, rational motivation for this villain can you talk about some of the conversations that you had with him that maybe better helped him understand where graphic was coming from uh and and maybe some some issues he potentially wrestled with in terms of figuring out how to push him forward oh interesting have you talked to kingsley uh early in the season so i wasn't really you know understanding where the character was going of course he goes through several arcs i uh, you know i think that's um Kingsley should speak to that more than than me. Right. I have a real sense of, um, you know, uh, terrorism and sociopathy, having devoted a large part of my life to the Looming Tower and um, studying Al <clears throat> studying Al Qaeda and stuff like that. And I, I was able to bring a lot of that, um, the psychology and and the political perspective I think that the conversations that I had with Kingsley were a lot about um, is Gravik a terrorist or is he just a sociopath? Okay. Is Gravik really driven by finding a home for his people or is he using that as an excuse to uh, service his own 
vendetta against Nick Fury, which is more sociopathy, right? And I, I think the conversations with Kingsley were fascinating because it is more interesting and nuanced that Gravik is simply pissed at Nick Fury mm-hmm. and will go to any length to uh, revenge, to get revenge against Nick Fury for literally for hurting Gravik or betraying Gravik or or abandoning Gravik. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the conversations really were about what is terrorism and what is just sociopathy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously all terrorists are sociopaths, but I don't know that all sociopaths are terrorists. Interesting. It's a really fine line for Kingsley to walk. And I think he did a really brilliant job because the the perspective was so deep and not just binary, good, bad. Yeah, no, very true. Um, you know, to that end, we learned so much about Nick as a, as a character in terms of his personal life and a lot of interesting holes of his backstory get filled over the course of this show. Um, what's the one that you had the most fun exploring or getting to sort of visualize? Because he's one of those characters where we know so little about him and that's almost by design. And now this story is the one that's going to open up, you know, p- crack open the nut a little bit more and show us more about the the hero. Well, again, I think my answer is all of it. I mm-hmm. think it was really fun to explore all of it with Sam because he's never had the opportunity to explore all of it with Nick Fury. Um, you know, revealing that he had a wife was a lot of fun and and a great episode out for episode two. Um, revealing his, his um, fear that maybe he's lost his step. It's a really vulnerable place for a badass like Nick Fury to go. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of surprising things. And I think the beauty of it is the collaboration with Sam. I mean, he brought a lot, not just to the performance, but to the story by bringing a lot of himself to it. The story he tells on the train in the beginning about riding the train with his his family when he was young and the food they used to bring. That Sam wrote that. Yeah, about that. He didn't ad lib it, but he worked through it for many weeks before we shot it. And that's why it feels so personal, because he's really exploring the Nick Fury inside Sam Jackson. That's amazing. Um, Tell me you have outtakes someplace of uh, some Nick Fury F-bombs as as only Sam Jackson can deliver. (laughs) Yes, it was a big discussion that that um, of course we have one because that's the iconic signature uh but i think if i remember correctly that was the discussion of do we want this on disney plus or do we want it on hulu and um so yeah we have it but uh you know andor andor had one in their finale as well too and they they really wanted to keep it do you you, can you tell me what scene it's in um he's in the the columbarium at the end of episode five okay he makes a phone call and says uh it's time. Let's go get those. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it got left out. But um, but it's a great and I do have to say one of the highlights of my adult life and of my career is that Sam Jackson called me one. Oh, really? Always have that as a fact. And I think coming from him, it's a compliment. Oh, sure. I'm sure it's expressed with love. Yeah. Such love. So <laughs> I, I've told all my friends the pinnacle of my career. 
Okay, so if you had tried to do scrolls in the early goings of the MCU, it would be really difficult um, to get emotional performances, I'm going to assume, uh, out of what is a heavy use of makeup and prosthetics. What did this experience teach you about getting, because uh, as you say, the series relies heavily on, on things like empathy. You know, how, what is your experience in terms of conveying those emotions through the prosthetics and makeup? It is tricky. Um and, you know, kudos to Christian, the prosthetics man in London, who worked really closely with me and Ben Mendelssohn and Charlene um, and even uh, Amelia, although she doesn't uh, show up as a scroll in the, in the series, but worked closely with, with Ben's past experience and where the teeth hurt and where the eyes uh, dried out and where the cheeks couldn't move. And so he, you know, Ben is saying, I couldn't perform in Captain Marvel like I want to perform here. So we have to adjust the, he he calls it the pig's head, but I shouldn't call it that. <laughs> we have to adjust <laughs> the pig's head. Um, and uh, uh, Christian was amazing at that. And so I think Ben was really dialed in and I think his performance is really beautiful. I think Charlene's performance is really beautiful mm -hmm. um, as a scrawl. I think, you know, some like the young Gravik, I think this poor kid was just stunned by, I mean, it hurt, it physically hurt him. And so you just have to chalk that up to, he hadn't done it before and we don't have time to rebuild a thing for him and whatever. But so the experience was, um, you know, get great prosthetics, get great prosthetic people working with you, but it's all about the performance and it's not about the latex. I don't know, I'll get you out here on this before we run out of time. Obviously, you're telling what amounts to a six hour story uh, and you have to sort of break it up that way across the episodes. But it, they were longer episodes in the beginning. And by the time we got to the finale, we were only at 38 minutes. Was that by design or were there are there scenes that didn't make it into the finale that you were? hoping to put in? Uh, I mean, as I said before, there are a lot of scenes that didn't end up and it's, it's less about uh, streamlining it as it goes on. And it's more about what is the best way to tell this story and mm. where is the best way to end it. And I think in the beginning, you do need a lot of setup for people to understand it. You need a chunky pilot. You need um, a full second episode because you've got an eight minute scene with you know, Don Cheadle firing Sam Jackson, and you need to let those things have their weight and breathe. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, you got to get the damn thing going. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, I mean, episode four is all about that ambush and it's got to be tight and lean and all about the ambush. So, um, I mean, I guess in a way, everything is by design, but things also evolve. And, uh, and that's how you find the best story. Well, I don't, I wouldn't argue uh, for the binge method on a lot of these Marvel shows. Uh, but I'm really thrilled that all the episodes are now finished because, you know, it was tough when you got to the end of an episode to have to wait another week to find out where you were going. So I'm thrilled that now I can sit down and watch it from start to finish. That's a good feeling. That's a good feeling. I'm yeah. glad. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you for your time, Ali. I really appreciate it. Have a great it's day. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ali for coming on the show. We really appreciate that. Um, so I want to talk a bit about my reaction to Secret Invasion because I feel like I was defending it to the boys uh, while watching it to the point where I even said that I thought that this show might do better in a binge mode because the way that each episode ended 
propelled me to want to keep going. And I do think if you were watching it straight through, some of its more uh, juicier twists might have had a bigger impact. I might have felt them uh, that way if it was just catapulting forward from story to story, because there are some huge reveals in this show uh, in terms of both uh, old MCU stories and places where it can go going forward. And I think if you're one of the people who have sort of punched out on the MCU or don't watch everything, if we were to tell you some of the things that happened in this show, you might be like, oh, that's I'm never coming back. I heard um, some things. Yeah. I mean, there there's some big surprises. And in the context of the show, I think they were OK in the context of the bigger MCU. I think they raised well, a lot yes, of problems. Some of the things I heard, I'm like, OK, now you're you're retroactively pissing me off about things that I actually did like whenever it yeah. came out. Like now, yeah. you know. And so I kept saying, like, give it to the finale, give it to the finale. Let me see how it resolves. And the finale ended up being one of the more disappointing episodes of the season. It was their um, worst. I know that was a big news thing. It was their worst reviewed episode of any of their Disney shows, right? Yeah, I think it had like 13 percent on Rotten was, Tomatoes, yeah. which, as we've said earlier, is not really not the, the barometer. Yeah, yeah. But the part I didn't understand, and that's why he and I talked about this in the interview, is why he had they, you have an hour long, you know, episode one and an hour long episode two. And then you get to the finale where there are a lot of threads that need to be tied up and you give yourself 37 minutes to do it. And I was like, why are you why are we rushing through this? This should be the moment where, you know, you give yourself a little more time to breathe and and these things don't have to feel as rushed. Um, so I couldn't defend it anymore after the the finale hit. Like overall, this season was a disappointment and it sort of ranks to me with a bunch of these other uh, Disney Plus shows that don't feel like a lot of thought is being given to them. And I don't know where Kevin Feige is. I'm really curious to see why he's not like front and center talking about these movies. He tends to do a lot less press nowadays to explain what's going on in the MCU. Um, I don't know where the quality control is on these shows. Uh, I don't think you can blame COVID for this anymore. Uh, these this, are, But this production was, wasn't this production hit by COVID though, right? Wasn't this one of the last ones that was sort of in that mix? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Because I was sure. going to ask about the episode links. This is pure spec conjecture at this point. But I know that we talk about the pattern of Disney releases and they're often trying to make everything stretch week to week so that by the time you're done the next thing is going week to week obviously to keep that's the model of sure. the streaming and loki is october is it october but ahsoka is at the, is at the end of this month oh okay do gotcha. you think that this was maybe pitched as like a hey sam jackson we're gonna do sort of a four-hour movie we're gonna split it into is it four hours is what the show kind of ended up being uh probably like six episodes and the last few were like we're, yeah, so something like four minutes. four and a half hour you know sort of large movie two-part movie thing yeah where, you know maybe we're gonna do like a four-part miniseries and they were like well we need six weeks of this like i again that's conjecture about the conversation but it does feel like it does feel like the model is let's let's make sure that these match and i don't know why episodes were as short as they were at the end of the season that might be the case my bigger issue with it is don't call it Secret Invasion. Like Secret Invasion mm. is a very important storyline in the comics. Extremely popular book, right? Yeah. A run. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That they should have handled properly. Um, and instead, you, you could have just made this a Nick Fury show. And this could have been the larger threat. It could have been Scrolls. still. It didn't have to be Secret Invasion. The Secret Invasion storyline from the comics, one of the things that's really propelling it forward is that major heroes um, are scrolls in disguise. So like it would almost be like if you had gone through this show and then realized that Steve Rogers 
from the moment that you met him had been an alien scrawl posing as Captain America this entire time. Um, not, you know, tertiary character over here who could be a scrawl and it's going to make you rethink things. When Secret Invasion hit, it was like, oh, no, these characters you've been paying attention to for a really long time have been aliens in disguise pretending to be them. So but Marvel didn't seem to have the, the courage to completely embrace that and do it in full. Or, you know, like there are people who were saying and they're not wrong, like this could have been a three arc movie, you know, trilogy that if they wanted to handle it properly. Am I wrong? And just am I just based on the title? Is this does this lead into whatever Secret Wars is supposed to be like? Is that a part of a larger arc? That's just a disconnected. Yeah, disconnected. Because that's more of the multiverse or something, right? But but what it did kind of was pull some stuff from um, uh, Captain Marvel and then also, I think, does some stuff to set up where the Marvels are going. A project um, I'm very excited about. I like that that recent trailer. Well, because it, it sets it. up the Skrulls and um, the Kree. And I think the Kree are an important part of the Marvels going forward. Yeah. So uh, to answer your question about Secret Wars, I'm not quite sure if it's going to involve the multiverse. I think it will in the movies. It doesn't okay. in the comics. Because, you know, I feel like we really haven't had any, we haven't had a film <laughs> Sean, really explore the we, multiverse. Before yeah, we close out the show, do you want yeah. to, uh, should you and I, I've seen the show as well. Okay. Um, do you want to add it to our tier list? Yeah, I'm gonna. I, I love these opportunities to pull up the Marvel tier list and take a look at what we've done over the Here years. We Here we oh. are. All right. It, it seriously. It, it. I. I get newly angry about it every time I get to get <laughs> hives. Up. You start bringing out hives. <laughs> All right. So I, if this is, uh, I'll do a quick introduction with the tier list because we do have a lot of new listeners. Hopefully they're sticking around this late in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that we do our tier lists is each of us who have seen it, we try to get everyone involved. These Marvel shows are a bit hard to get four of us to stick through, especially when they're not that good. Um, so because Sean and I have seen it, we will add it. If the guys end up watching it and they feel differently, you know, we're open to coming back. But the way that this works um, as we've gotten together, we each individually decide where we would put it on our own tier list uh, ranking of the MCU movies. Uh, and then we average that out to, to sort of come up with Real Blend as a podcast's uh, tier list. Uh, I think we have like two, I forget how many main episodes of of the MCU tier list where we went through chunks of the phases. I forget mm-hmm. if it's two or four. Um, and then with each major release since we typically come in and, and add like 11 thunder on B. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a mess, but that's what I makes it fun. It. Yeah. Um, uh, Sean, you, you got to, you got to say your piece about it. Where do you put it after all of that, uh, for you? Sean's like S I mean, my gut <laughs> reaction crazy. that if you were to ask me, I'm saying that it's a D. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I look at some of those ones and I know that we're not supposed to do this. This is not how yeah, the game yeah, yeah. is played. Yeah, we're, we're not in the, some we're of not in the business of, of putting it on this list. It's our own list. This list doesn't exist. And then, and then it right. shows up <laughs> magically. Here's what hurts me the most. I think it has a tremendous cast and it didn't utilize them properly. The cast didn't get I. I it's so disappointing that, you know, I love Sam Jackson. Uh, he doesn't have anything to prove. Um and I don't know if it was the script or the conditions or whatever. He does not do anything to save this movie. Um, no. Like he, he, I sent Jake a clip of like, just look at the action of this. It looks like, why did you not do this again? I'm just completely removed from this. Just looking like an actor stumbling through 
a bit of action, like not like physical action, but just like action of moving things around yeah. in the scene, putting a phone to your face. It just has. Yeah. For me, it just has so much of that. That's that's tough. And it's not just him. I mean, it's like Don Cheadle is a terrific yeah. actor and is actually given a really interesting thing to play, but then not giving the, the enough time to really play with it. Um, Olivia Coleman is largely wasted. Ben Mendelsohn is largely wasted. Amelia Clark is largely wasted. If you had told me that this cast was going to get together uh, and work on a Marvel show that ended up being as deflating as yeah. this one is, it just breaks my heart. So. I was ultimately I disappointed. A, Go ahead. I was going to. I, I was wondering if I could ask a spoiler question, but I know that was uh, spoiler warning. A skip ahead. Uh, what do you need? A minute? Two minutes? Uh, yeah, yeah. Two okay, minutes. Skip ahead two minutes if you don't want spoilers. Yes. So I had the the Don Cheadle thing. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to say spoiled for me, but I just because I'm not watching the show. But yeah. I found out about the Don Cheadle thing. Um, how far back are they saying he? They, they think well, after, they haven't said, after right? Civil War. The director kind of after did some Civil War. The director kind of did some interviews and said that if you pay attention to the clues, it, it indicates that after he got injured in Civil War. Um, because when he shows up in Secret Invasion and he gets retrieved from where they're holding him hostage, he has a hospital gown on and yeah. they showed him in a hospital gown getting an MRI after that back injury that he sustained in Civil War. But so the what largest, angers so many people is that yeah. that would mean that he was not present at Tony's death. Yeah, so he didn't get to say goodbye to Tony. Yeah, and that like right. the War Machine's a big part of Infinity War. He's a big part of Endgame, you well, know. And, and, and he does a, he does a, mourn Tony, but it's not him. Like what a weird like that's an emotional moment that we saw that now is like oh that's see that not that's a one moment. of my issues is that like okay if if the filmmakers who made Infinity War or the Russo brothers if they like and and Don I'm assuming Don Cheadle didn't know about this so no. like so no. he didn't play didn't play the character that way so it like. You know, if, if they had said like, if, you know, if Don Cheadle came out and said, hey, I was told after after Civil War that this was what was going on. So I've actually secretly been playing the character as if I would actually be really impressed. I'd be is, like, OK, that's awesome. To, to, to it doesn't seem like it's the case. To Sean's point about about like how it was in the comics and how large it was. This just very much feels like this is something they did in the comics. We need to do it here. We need to reveal that someone. But they couldn't do. Steve yeah, but Rogers. we don't have the guts they to, to they couldn't do, do one do, of the. Like, imagine if they were like, actually, Tony's not dead. <laughs> you know, and it's like that was a, that was a scroll that they buried, you know, like or if they they should have just gone like back really far and be like, hey, but you it, know how like between Iron Man one and two, it's a completely different that's actor. It would have been hysterical that's, if when they re- retrieved that's him, when it happens. Terrence Howard. Terrence Howard. <laughs> Terrence Howard comes out of the bunker. That would have been so good. <laughs> would have been so like, good. And, and he's looking that. around going, did none of you notice that he looks completely <laughs> different than me? <laughs> All right. We, we've gone over our two minutes. We're so yeah, sorry. Sorry. To sorry. You Sorry. probably don't care. So I, will, I, I said, do you, do you agree with me? I, I was, I was, I will quickly say I was just completely disappointed by this series. I I feel like it's opening scene was maybe it's best scene and it's not even a perfect scene, but to me, the trailer and the, uh, and the concept and sort of what everyone was excited about had me sold for like, Ooh, they're going to take their time to do like a really interesting spy thriller. Um, but they didn't shoot a spy thriller. Like mm. it's not, it's, it's, I was just really distracted with the way it was shot. Things were like brightly lit. Things were happening in the daytime. Like it was, was a great opportunity for, for Nick Fury to be working in the shadows. Like there's a point in the, in the series where he sort of gets um, disavowed from, from the U S government in a way. And like, that's a great opportunity for, for these, like to shoot this really gorgeous sort of spy thriller in the vein of the MCU and it just looks like a bad TV show often. Um, 
and I know that's kind of nitpicky and I know maybe I'm more sensitive to, you know, the way it's shot, but I think that goes a long way to people's enjoyment that if it looked intriguing, if it looked like, you know, the last of us is not shot in a, in a brightly, you know, colored way, it's, it's trying to reflect its story in the way that it looks. This doesn't, I don't think do justice to what it could have been um, in, in any way and was really disappointed. I, my immediate reaction was D and looking at the list, I was like, it should be an F because I just don't really have any redeeming qualities of it. Um, but, but a D is kind of where I was leaning. And I think if, because there's only two of us, it would, it would raise it to a D, um, anyway, okay. because we, we typically range for the, the more positive, just, uh, all right. For what I can't believe but, secret invasion is getting a D. I can't believe Marvel I know, did secret invasion and I thought, it's not even good enough to be above a D. That's I, th- I thought this was going to be another Loki level show. I really was. I really was. What the hell uh, is going on over there, man? I don't understand. What you, is going I'm going to say your Kevin Feige point. I never thought about his bureau. You're right. He oh, used he to like make the rounds. He I knows. Mean, I think he knows what each of these are. So where is he? What is he doing? What's killing me is hopefully that planning the next thing, like hopefully making the whenever they splash and return, making that worth it. That's the hope, I guess. But like what else is pulling his focus away? Mutants. That's the part I don't get. X-Men mutants. I think I honestly I think that they have to be that has to be the thing that they are they know is going to bring an audience back to say like, holy shit, Wolverine, holy shit. And I know they have the Deadpool thing, but like I think that, you know, the Fantastic Four mutants of it all is such a the Fox of it all, I guess, is such a big inflection point for them to refresh on versus the multiverse, which has obviously fallen flat that I would only imagine that that's like a huge focus right now is how are we going to make that work and be as best as possible because i think that's going to sustain them for for a while because it feels like deadpool is gonna poke fun at that for as it should yeah, for its as run it should yeah and that will probably be the that'll be its a uh, flashpoint moment <laughs> it'll be deadpool and then you know the mcu will return maybe who knows wow fascinating yeah, yeah. all right so let's well, round is, this episode to a close list, yeah. yeah it's time to Time to wrap it up, folks. Hope you enjoyed this week's show. Uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Uh, Kevin will be back in the chair. We'll have a couple more interviews to line up and uh, hopefully something more exciting to talk about than Secret Invasion, which broke my heart. Um, listeners can follow us on social media. Of course, we're very active over that way at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell, at Gabe Kovach. And the show itself is at Real Blend. I, it's, you know, I don't know what we do at the end of these episodes now. We used to sh- uh, shout oppenheimer and um yeah. we used to have stuff to build toward we're trying uh, to get scorsese we're trying to get uh pay your know. actors pay your actors pay your writers pay your writers there you go pay your artists pay your artists until next week pay your artists pay your artists, pay your artists. <laughs> say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill